0: Lord, help us now as we continue in this book of James, and in particular in this section of James, as we are wrestling through our response to the trials that you give us. And Lord, help us to to learn, Lord, from you. And so, Lord, what we know not would you teach us, what we have not would you give us, and what we are not would you make us, but Lord, give us teachable hearts to receive what you have for us today. And allow me simply to be your messenger, to be faithful to what you say in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a very serious question. Why are fire engines red? Well, they have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is twelve. Twelve. Twelve inches make a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sailed the seven seas. The seven seas have fish, and fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red, and fire engines are always Russian, so they're red. So goes the logic of this little poem. And friends, if we are honest, oftentimes our logic in the midst of trials doesn't make sense. You've probably interacted with someone who's going through trial, and they're they're convinced of something, or they're thinking through things, and you're like, man, they're they're just not thinking clearly here at all we may not like to admit it but the reality is trials do things to us that we're not always thinking clearly and James here is writing to these believers that have been scattered abroad and he's beginning by saying listen when you go through a trial I want to help you think clearly through that trial because they were they were being persecuted they were being ostracized but it's not just always those big things His book actually reveals there's actually matters of the heart that are issues of trial and test. And we need to be thinking clearly through them. But friends, all this goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I mean, it it, it began right there at the beginning of that time of creation. When confronted about his sin of eating the forbidden fruit, Adam says, the woman you gave me. I mean, he's saying, you know, Yes, I saw the fruit, yes, but do you understand, God, that that you created this woman? And do you understand that this woman is, you know, when she wants something and she tells me about it, that I have no choice. I have to go do it. And ultimately, he's saying, it's not just the woman, he's saying, God, it's your fault because you created her to complete me. And then, of course, The story continues, and God approaches Eve, and when she's confronted, what happens? Eve says, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. It's not my fault, God. I was fooled by the serpent. To be sure, the serpent wants to fool you, but the serpent doesn't make you do anything. See, both Adam and Eve were given freedom to eat of any of the fruit in the garden except one. That was their test. Enjoy it all. Enjoy all of this garden. Just just imagine what that garden was like. All the beautiful, tasty food that God had provided for them. But you can't eat of the fruit of this tree. Now you know that's the, that's the worst thing to say to a child, isn't it? Yeah, you can eat all this stuff, but you can't eat this cake. This cupcake here. You can't touch it, you can't eat it, you can't do anything with it. Oh. Now the question is why? Cuz there's something special about it. Yeah, there is something special, but you're not allowed. Adam and Eve gave into their temptations. It was a trial that God gave them. It was a test, and they allowed themselves to be drawn away and enticed but they didn't take ownership. They desired to blame shift instead, right? And friends, that's what James is is seeking now to address as he continues to speak about how God's people are to face trials. So far, as we've gone through this book of James, James has counseled his readers about steadfastness in trials. And I've presented to you. That's really the theme through this book. It's remaining steadfast in the midst of your trial, whatever that trial or test might be. But he's also then talked about wisdom in trials, right? If you, if, you don't, if you don't know, if you're lacking something, and certainly you're lacking wisdom, ask of God. He'll give you wisdom. He's generous. He loves to give wisdom to his people. And then last week we looked at the subject of blessings and trials. Well, those two words kind of aren't supposed to go together. But if you remember as James unfolds it. He says, blessed is the man, in verse 12, who what? Remains steadfast. And the idea there is that other people are looking at you and saying, how in the world can you, can you manage this? And you're saying, I have God's wisdom to remain steadfast in this trial. So this has been a powerful section of Scripture, because as we've moved from the Book of Job, when we've been sitting with Job throughout all his trial and interacting with that, now we're coming to some practical principles to help us endure the trials that we're facing. And he says here, where he addresses now this idea of temptations with trials. And I would like to say that our text today um, is basically this: It's a warning for Christians to deal rightly with temptation in the midst of their trials. Now, if we were to structure the passage, it basically is structured under two headings. The two headings would be this. James is making two points. He's wanting his readers to understand two things. First of all, that God is not the source of temptation. You can't blame Him for your temptation. And secondly, that God is the source of all that is good. So that's at the beginning, verse 13, and then at verse 13, 17, we have the second point. That's the structure. That's how he's kind of laying things out. And the focus is on God. But in giving us that structure, he is also seeking to ask and answer three questions. And the three questions are, where do temptations come from? Secondly, how do temptations operate? Third, how do we overcome temptations? Okay, so so the structure is, is kind of saying this is who God is. God is not the source of temptation. He is the source of all things that are good. But then he's also asking these three questions. So we're going to try and put those things together following the structure of the text but then asking those questions as we go through that structure this morning. All right. So let's first of all just consider the fact that, that James is wanting to emphasize for us that God is not the source of temptation let's read verses 13 through 14 Let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire now friends James is telling us initially that temptations are the normal experience for every human being In verse 13, he says, When he is tempted. In verse 14, he says, Every man is tempted. In other words, there is a test. There is a trial that you and I are going through. And with every trial, there is always the possibility and there's always the reality of temptation. It just takes me back to my school days, right? I have a test. And if I didn't study or I just don't know it, I have the temptation, am I going to cheat? And I can do some premeditated cheating, right? And that's, you know, you bring the sheets of paper. We didn't have like smartphones and stuff like that or glasses you could wear that would give you the data and all that kind of stuff, right? We just had like sleeves where you could put, you know, pieces of paper and stuff like that, which I never did, of course, right? Or I could do temptation on the fly, right? It's that... Oh, 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 okay, looking over at your neighbor to see what they're doing. And you better make sure you're sitting next to someone who's smart, right? But in the moment, there can be temptations that come up, or they can be premeditated things that you, you're anticipating and you're going to flesh out. The trial, though, will always bring the possibility of temptation. And friends, that's just normal human existence. And that's why we can't think of temptations or or the trials that James is talking about here simply as the big things. These are the normal everyday things that we go through um, all the time. Sinful behaviors that we might struggle with. So I mean, there, there are things that go on in our head, right? Notions that we think of, uh, uh, ways that we're speaking to ourselves in our head. Things that then we do out of that. They're idols that we're worshiping in our heart. They're desires we wrestle with that are like incessant waves of the sea. Their reactions to what others do, say, or that we perceive that they are thinking. Haven't you ever perceived that someone was thinking a certain thing and you react to it and then you find out what they were actually thinking and now you feel like a total idiot? Because you didn't take the time to find out what they were thinking? Of course. Now, all of you this morning are likely tempted in one particular way because most of you today have smartphones some of you are using them to actually follow along with your, you know the scripture here but what happens when you have a smartphone oh you're wise enough now to you know, put it on vibrate or stun right one of those two and if someone sends you a text during the sermon you know it goes off and you're like okay should i check that now should I wait? Now, interesting. When I was growing up, and some of you in here would attest to this, when you were growing up, um, you had to wait till you got home to even find out that there was a phone call, right? Perish the thought that we would have to wait a little bit. But today, you get a text. You know, it's like, oh, you know, oh no, i I got to pay attention to the sermon. Uh, this is what God's called me to. but you know, maybe it's maybe it's grandma, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, and you. You finally pull it out nonchalantly to look at it, pretending like you're looking at the Bible on your phone or something like that, right? And, you know, it's a JCPenney 50% off thing, right? And you've been totally derailed, right? Just turn your phones off, put them away, you know, whatever you need to do. I'm just saying there's there's a natural distraction there that just we've learned to live with, right? Some of us, however, rationalize To ourselves, the positives of multitasking, which is another way to kind of drift in this kind of temptation circumstance. Now, we don't have any smartphone police, just please understand that, all right? We're not walking up and down the aisles checking to see whether or not you have a text message or what you're going to do with that. But if we're not disciplined enough to fight that temptation, or if we're easily led astray, we can easily become distracted from what God wants us to be doing you see how you see where I'm going with that right so there's this idea then of of temptation this is a normal you're at church you're listening to a sermon and even in that context there can be temptation all right now it's not a sin to be tempted hear that it's not a sin to be tempted but it is a sin to give into that temptation all right make that distinction All of us are tempted, but giving into that sin uh, or giving into that temptation is where the sin now begins. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself, but he did not give into that temptation. He was tempted in three ways, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. So he was confronted with these pressures to give into the temptation, but he would not do it. In fact, we will know he could not do it. So where does temptation come from? Well, James is wanting us to understand that temptations do not come from God. James is emphasizing here at the beginning that that we as God's children should never say such a thing. Notice what he says there, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. I mean, that's, that's a command. Right? In the heat of the trial, we're, we're exhausted, we're, we're confused, we're hurt, we're overwhelmed by the mess that is around us. So we're, we've endured for weeks or months or even years. But even so, we have no business thinking to ourselves, God is tempting me to sin. We should never have that thought. That's what he's saying here. Get it out of your mind. That shouldn't come out of the mouth of a follower of Christ. This is a universal commandment and it applies at all times to all believers for the rest of time. And no matter the trial, no matter the hardship, no matter the suffering you're called to endure, you should not say, you must not say, it is God who is tempting me. Now see, James is talking about trials, isn't he? And part of the confusion, if depending on the translation you have, is sometimes the same word is translated tempt and trial. And so you're not sure which one's being talked about here. But he's, he's saying here that this, this enticement to sin does not come from God. Right? Then he gives us now some reasons why. Verse 13. He says, first of all, God cannot be tempted with evil. God's nature won't allow temptation. He is completely sufficient in and of himself. or itself. You and I have needs and cravings that long to be satisfied, but God doesn't have those. Look, God didn't create us because he was up in heaven and had a hole in his heart and wanted to make sure that he could have a creation that could love him back. Meh. No, God is completely sufficient in and of Himself. He has no needs. And therefore, He's not, by His nature, tempted. He is holy and pure and without sin. There is not the smallest trace of evil in God's nature at all. He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That is why when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up and the angels singing, holy, 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 he said, woe is me. And we understand that, that if you wanted to pick out who would be the godliest guy at that point in time in the history of the world, it would be Isaiah. And that guy is before God saying, I am undone. So temptation is a luring to something forbidden that we will have pleasure in. But God is never lured. God certainly does not take pleasure in sin. His actions flow from his holy nature, his holy character. So the expression, God cannot be tempted, translates actually one word. It literally literally reads this, God is untemptable. It's not that he can be tempted, but he chooses not to be. No, his very nature is, I, I'm not tempted. I don't. You throw mud my direction, I stay white. That's just what it is. It's his nature. He is not somehow adjusted in his character, his nature, because of things. He is who he is. And that is who he is. But not only that, God does not then tempt anyone to do evil. Again, this flows out of his nature. Because he is holy, he cannot tempt anyone to sin. Yes, he decrees trials that will be part of your journey and my journey, but he is not responsible for the temptation that you are experiencing. His trials are not in and of themselves temptations to sin. They are are tests to prove the genuineness of our faith—they're two separate things. So imagine it this way: trying to try to picture this. God has a path for us, and the trial or the test is to walk on that path. And so we're walking on that path, but temptation is trying to grab us and pull us off that path. All right, just a way to visualize it. And so that's why you know in, in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's all about a man going on a journey. And if he goes off the path, he's in trouble. So he's got to stay on the path. Just think of it in those terms. The path is where God has called you. It may have obstacles. It may be difficult. There may be suffering. But the path itself is not a temptation. Being on the path, though, does create in you now possibilities of temptation. All right. Now, 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us of this truth. This is Paul now speaking. He says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I just always think at the end of that verse, it seems strange in a, in a human sense to say, God will give you a way of escape so that you can endure it. It's like, Wait a second. We want, the, we want the escape without the endurance. <laughs> but God says, no, remain steadfast. And in remaining steadfast down this path, you have a way of escape. It's God's way. That's the idea behind it, all right? So while God may test or prove his servants in order to strengthen their faith, he never seeks to induce sin and destroy their faith. So says Douglas Moo. So, who or what is to blame then for temptation? If temptations don't come from God, where do they come from? And we've, say, man has sought to answer that question since the Garden of Eden. And, and here is just going to be a short list of many ways that man says um, temptation comes. Or to put it differently, the items on this list are to blame for bringing temptation to us. Let's just kind of walk through them together here. First of all, the environment. Uh, This is the person who says, "I I didn't choose to be born into this family that is on the wrong side of the tracks. It's not my fault." Element of truth: you didn't choose that. But your being on those sides of the track, and we understand what that means—the maybe not the best part of town does not mean, then, that you have no hope or you can't be a thinking person and you cannot choose to glorify God. But people will blame the environment for their being sucked into temptation. And certainly, we want to acknowledge there are some difficult environments out there. But ultimately, it's not the environment. You know, what, what do you what do you expect me to do? I'm going to sell drugs. I'm going to break into a house. I'm going to carjack people. Why? Because I have no other opportunity. This is where I live. This is what life is like. My environment dictates this. I'm without excuse. You could use that in a number of different settings, right? Secondly, I lump this together, but institutions, church, school. You know, it's it's the, it's the church's fault that I am living this way, if they'd helped me out rather than tell me how bad and sinful I was, maybe I would have chosen a different path. Well, it's true. There can be some churches that are abusive. There can be some churches that are, all they're doing is just talking about, and, you know, in a sense, banging people on the head with their sin. And they're not offering the hope of the gospel. They're just offering moralism. And as a result, someone might reject it the pastor had not been so harsh if there hadn't been so many rules if there had been more grace elements of truth but we can't blame the church for our temptation Or maybe it's the school you know they didn't educate me or even care about me they were always complaining that I didn't get my homework done well there's a reason it's called homework or that my test grades were not good enough? Well, you need test grades in order to, to progress, right? But it's the school's fault. So institutions. Well, we could say things about government too. People. It's my wife's fault that I behave the way I do. Sorry, honey. This is theoretical. Right. She doesn't respect me for who I am. She's always nagging me about how I am to do this and that. I'm not saying this is true of my wife. I'm just saying, in theory, a wife could be saying something like this, right? And so the the husband's like, well, I have no choice but to behave this way because of what she says, what she does, what she thinks. Or it's my children's fault. All they do all day long is cry and cry and cry and whine, and they want this and they want that. I can't go to the grocery store because they're grabbing candy bars. I I can't go anywhere. They constantly want my attention, and I don't get a break. That's why I have chosen to do... And here's the last one. I shouldn't say last one. Disease. This is becoming so much more popular, isn't it? Why did you steal that? Well, I am a kleptomaniac. I mean, just think through the logic of of this. You know, why did you why did you punch that person? Because I have this anger management problem. Or, or, or put it a little bit differently, why are you arguing all the time? Well, I have opposition defiant disorder. No, you don't. <laughs> See, what's happened is we've taken our responsibility and we've put it in terms now that equate to disease, which takes away the responsibility of the individual, right? The last one is this, and we may not always say this, but sometimes we think this, right? He's the one, he's he's at fault. It's like the minister who got caught stealing and he told the police he didn't do it, but a demon living inside him did it. It's kind of hard to prove, but it's an ideology that says it's not my fault. Now certainly Satan has a big part to play. He he loves to, to draw us away. He loves to lead us astray, and he will use all the tools in his resource to do that. And James will have something to say about Satan later in his book. His point now, though, is to drive home the fact that it is not God that is the source of temptation. The great theologian Will Rogers once said, there are two great eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. it take you a while to figure that one out, right? Um, we don't like to take responsibility for our actions. And what James is telling us is that we are the ones who are responsible for our actions. But, but we, don't, we don't always know that we are responsible. In other words, we don't acknowledge it. We, we're just so used to living the way we live that sometimes there are things that are happening in us and we don't even recognize they're there. This Friday evening, I got a phone call from Matias Mojica. And for those of you who don't know him, he's our, our partner, missionary partner in Bolivia. Um, and he's a national pastor serving there. And um, I had called him earlier in the week because there's stuff happening in, in Bolivia. I don't know if you knew that, but there's, there's a lot of political unrest happening right now um, because of their, um, their elections that are taking place in October and um, there are demonstrations happening in Santa Cruz, they're happening in La Paz, and not only that, um, the eastern side of Bolivia is being rocked by fires. And part of the problem is that the president will not get help outside of his country to put out those fires when people are saying, we're here, we're ready, we'll do this, and he won't do it. You know, it's this kind of stubborn pride thing. And so I was calling to find out you know how they were, how they were doing, how things going, how is this affecting the church? And it was I was so engrossed in my conversation with him, and my wife and I were going to go out and we were going go to go to the grocery store together, and and so I'm I'm grabbing my keys and I'm making sure I got my flip-flops, and then I'm wandering around, and I'm I'm on the phone talking to Matthias about what's happening, and I'm thinking to myself, now where is my phone? Where, where is my phone? Now, it might be a sign of old age. I understand that, right? But here's the point. I I think sometimes we're like that. We're like, you know, where is this temptation coming from? And it's, it's right there. And it's us. But we don't see it. Or we don't want to see it. See, the temptation is not outside of us. The temptation is in us. And so this is what, what James now is, is saying to us. Temptations don't come from God, temptations come from within us. I can't blame God for my temptation, but I can blame myself. You see, God is not responsible for my sin. Satan can be responsible for enticing me to sin. These other things I mentioned are all part of the, the dynamic that, that kind of pave away or provoke or nurture me maybe toward that sin but they don't make me sin. I sin because I choose to sin. You can't say, the devil made me do it, right? You made me angry. No, they didn't. Now, they did something to provoke you. But you made a choice to say, I'm going to respond in anger choice you have it's not their fault now what they may have done was was wrong it may have been sinful but that doesn't mean that it's an open door now for you to respond in kind we all are responsible for temptation and james is going to unpack that for us here so james having reminded us of god's nature now reminds us of our nature we are depraved that's how how we describe it and that word depraved means that sin has touched every aspect of our being. That everything that we do is tainted in some way, shape, or form by sin. So even the good things that we do are tainted with sin. The reason I'm doing this good thing may be noble, may be helpful, may be right, but a part of me, a part of me wants to get some accolade. Right? Part of me wants to be recognized. Part of me wants wants you know, maybe to get something back from me. See, all these things are are there. This is a good thing. It's it's by itself, it's 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 neutral, except that there is in us this this presence of sin. And so we're constantly being challenged then in the things that we're doing, even the good things that we're doing, to make sure as best we can to do them cleanly without sin. It's a challenge, isn't it? So that's depravity. We all have an inclination to sin, of being dragged into sin, but it's our desire that drags us into sin. In other words, the responsibility for sin rests squarely on the shoulders of each human being. And so friends, Douglas Moo reminds us that Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of the temptation, but the infrequency of succumbing to the temptation. So trials will come, and trials are there so that we will remain steadfast, and remaining steadfast results in by bearing fruit in maturity, is what he says in verse 4. And we need wisdom, so we ask God for wisdom in the midst of that trial, and we know if we are applying wisdom that there is blessing as a result of that, and that is all helpful because we need to recognize then that in the trial, there's always the possibility of being tempted to sin. And that's not where we want to be at all. And so, it's not that I wasn't tempted that is maturity, but it's that I was tempted and I didn't give in to that temptation that is maturity. Now friends, there's something that we need to recognize here, that there is an importance of our thoughts about God. Because it's interesting here, isn't it, that that James is, is beginning to give us counsel about how to deal with temptation by saying, you need to think rightly about God first. We need to begin by by fighting our thoughts about God. And if those are clear, if those are right, then the likelihood of continuing on and thinking wrong thoughts about that particular temptation are going to be removed. So I need to think rightly about God. I mean, here, here are some ways that we about how, how our mind drifts in the midst of the trial and temptation. We ask the question, why? Okay? It's a legitimate question. Job asked it. Lots of people ask it, but behind that why, there can be different motives for that why. Why did you put me in this situation? God, that's not right. That's what we're saying. Why don't you relieve me of this situation? You know who I am, you know my weakness know my tendencies. You know what happens to me when I'm in these situations. So why, why, why would you put me in this situation? Or why didn't you show me this sooner? So I wouldn't have to go through all this stuff. I mean, why why couldn't the pastor have chosen a different topic like a year ago when I was dealing with this, so now I'm only finding out about it. What's up with that, God? We're we're still blaming God, aren't we? But we need to have right thoughts about God. God is not the source of our temptation. But what's what's important for us to realize, and we'll see that in just a little bit, that he is the source of all things. So just hold that thought. Now James, having talked about this, moves into a section that oftentimes is looked at outside of the context of this. But he's going to ask the question, answer the question, how do these temptations operate? Look at verse 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So how do temptations operate? That's the question for us right now. Since we know that God is not the source of temptation and that Satan or other things are not the source of temptation, how does it operate? What is the process that takes place? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that the source of temptation is our desires. It's within us. Our desires are where these temptations begin. And we, we, we nurse those desires, or we, we kind of encourage those desires by the stimulation that might be outside of us. But ultimately, it's our desires that are saying, yeah, I want that. I'm going to go look for that. I'm going to get on my computer. I'm going to go browse for that. I'm going to go to the mall. and I'm going to see if I can find it. Whatever it might be, it's your desire that's being fleshed out. And we've seen some of that already. But now let's think about the force of this temptation. This is where we move into this fishing language. Temptation resides within us. It's not an outside enemy, but one that lives within. It's indwelling sin that lurks within us until the day we die or go to be with Jesus. That's just the reality of, of what's going on with us. And our whole walk with God is a process of putting things to death, and then putting on um, the, 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 the clothes of Christ's righteousness. That You find that in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. But James now uses two words. From the world of fishing to describe the force of temptation. And you see them clearly right there. He says, We are lured by our desires. A lure. It's like usually a shiny thing. How many of you here go fishing? Right? Uh, um, you know, we, we love our lures. You, you, I mean, I'm not a big fisherman, but I've seen these guys, and it's like, you know, some guys have tools and some guys have tap, right? And it's easy because they're both eating the teeth, right? And we like to keep the simple attempt, right? But have you've seen some tackle boxes. They're like huge. And it's like, well, what's this lure for? It's for this particular kind of fish and these particular kind of circumstances. And it wiggles this way because if it wiggled that way, it wouldn't bite. But if it wiggles this way, you know, they know what they're doing with their lures. And the idea of the lure is to draw you away, right? And then. It says we are enticed by desires. The idea there is we are ensnared. So just get the picture. Here's this innocent little fish swimming away, enjoying life, right? Little Nemo, just going on his journey. And all the kids are going to be crying right now, right? But, right? Going on his journey, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees something glowing, and it's shining in the distance, and something in him says, kind of interesting. Let's go check this out. It might be some food. It might be something tasty. And so you go a little further. The fish, you know, up to this lure. and So he goes to the lure and it looks and it's wiggling and it's moving just like this food. And so he goes to bite it. It's like, this is going to be great. And he gets his mouth around and all of a sudden it's like, and the hook is sunk. Fish thought that he was going to enjoy dinner. Now he realizes he's going to be there. My friends, that's, that's the picture that he's painting. This is how temptation works. There's something in us that says, yes, I want to go after this. So when James tells us that we are lured and enticed by our own desires, he's saying, we bait our own hooks. We are responsible for this temptation. We're not, we're not a fish that's going around and like, oh oh oh, it oh, oh. had to happen. You know we're not passive. We are very active in this. Our desires are strong and they're desiring, they're moving. They're, they're striving after something. Charles Simeon uses the analogy that we are caring about within ourselves much inflammable material. If we're not careful, temptation can strike the spark that causes an explosion. John Calvin says, James' object is to teach us that there is in us the root of our own destruction. They're just both getting back to the point here that it's not God's fault. It's our fault. Our desires, then, can be lured can be led astray, and they can be captivated then, but it's, this temptation is, is something that we have control over. And friends, if we ignore the danger within, or think that it has been eradicated, we are in a most precarious position. That's why even a man in his 70s can still struggle with something like pornography or may have difficulty walking through the city that might include a red light district Wide, He may be older, but he still has desires. You just got to recognize guys, we don't get over this. Don't, none of us get over the presence of temptation, none of us get over our desires, wanting to be satisfied with the battle that. And we need to do that carefully with God's help. So we see the force of temptation I mean, it's it's powerful isn't it just it's like oh God, I got got to do something here but then there's the course of temptation and now we use the analogy of childbirth it says verse 15 that desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death maybe they are going to gives birth to death so James here personifies evil, saying temptations and desires come together to conceive, and the name of their offspring is sin. See that? Temptation and desires come together, and they then produce this offspring that's called sin. Now, sin is not cute. It's not little baby. It's like oh, right? No, it's not. Ah. It, it, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. But this is what happens when temptation and desire get together. And sin grows up, becomes a parent, and gives birth to a new child by the name of death. Right, so that's, that's the picture that's going on here. So desire gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. Now, as a pastor, I often do weddings. And often in a wedding ceremony, I uh, will address those in attendance and ask the question, if anyone here knows of any reason why these two should not be married, speak now or forever hold your peace. Fortunately, I've never had anyone speak up at that point in time. Uh, you, you certainly don't want it to be one of the, the, you know, the wedding parties. Um, so I've said some of those things, but never had anyone speak up. But what James is saying here is that we need to speak up in our hearts, right? When, the, when it's the potential of this marriage now moving together, when our desires are moving toward the temptation, we need to speak up. Because a marriage is going to take place. And when that marriage takes place, it will give birth. And it will give birth to sin, that sin will end up resulting in death. So the key point is this, that both images end in death. The fish takes the bait, it's cooked, And pulled to shore where it dies. Childbirth results in death. So we have desire, at least to sin, at least to death. Friends, it's helpful for us to see just that, that operation. And to remember that it begins within us. It's our desires now cultivating habits that move us toward this marriage that produces sin. So God is not the source of temptation. You and I are the source of temptation, and there, there is this, this kind of operation that takes place. Desire, sin, and death. Now James gets back to focusing his attention on God he's saying now God is the source of all that is good. And as we're going through trials, This is something that we need to remind ourselves of, right? This is what James is talking about in the context here. He's wanting us to be steadfast in that trial and not to give in to temptation. And one of the things he wants to make sure we understand is that God is not the source of that temptation, but he is the source of all that is good. In fact, that is good news. That gives us hope. That gives us a right perspective. So how do we overcome temptation? This is one of the questions that we began with. Um, It's the third question that James is seeking to answer. How do we overcome temptation? Well, first of all, we need to heed the warning. That's verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now this... um, I want you to notice two things about about this verse. First, it is a heartfelt verse. He says, my beloved brothers. This is is endearing language. This is a a, a, a pastor who cares for his greater flock, and he's writing to help them out. So he's saying, listen, please, please hear what I have to say. Second, I want you to notice, verse 16 is what we call a hinge verse. Is both looking back to what Jesus, uh, James just said, and it's also looking forward to what he's about to say. So, looking back, we must recognize that it's easy to be deceived while we're going through trial, to want to question God's kindness and love toward us, to, to question the truth of His promises, to fail to take ownership of our responsibilities, that to place blame anywhere but on ourselves. So we, we need to be. Careful that we're not deceived as we're looking back to what James has already said. It's also looking back and saying, "Be on the lookout for your desires ruling your heart, or don't be fooled by fishing lures of your desires that are enticing you to move in the direction that is um, seeking to, to, to have that sinful satisfaction." And he's saying, "Be warned that giving in the sin will lead to sin only leads death." He's saying. Don't be deceived. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Hear it all. Embrace it all. And, friends, ultimately, what he's saying is that there are two potential paths to any test. This is not new to you. I think you've deduced this as we've gone through this. Testing that is met with endurance makes us mature and leads to life, right? So, testing that is met with endurance makes us mature and that leads to life. Secondly, testing that is met with selfish desire leads to sin and death. So you have these two choices before you. Right? Steadfast in the trial, which produces maturity and life. Give to temptation in the trial, which results in sin and death. He's saying, I want you to choose the first. But I want to warn you about the second. And the second one is not easy. But you need to be aware of it. All right? So he's saying, I want you to heed the warning. But it's also looking forward to what James is about to say, in particular, what God is like, what he does, and what you can, why you should trust him. So we must keep the warning, but we also then must believe the promise then, that the change is going to give us. And he presents two promises that we must believe are true about God and his gifts. He says there in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the first promise is this. It's a promise about the gift. God's gifts are good and perfect. This is a, a, a literary way of saying one thing. What God gives you is, is good. Our trials, our tests, are both good and perfect gifts. They're not gifts that, when open, turn out to be rotten inside. You know, here, I'm going to bring you a pineapple for your for your gift. You know? I'll pray you go home and you can slice it open it's full of maggot. You say, Pastor I don't want any more gifts from you. Right? See, God is not like that. That's not the kind of gift that he gives us. He's not, he's not giving us gifts that have passed or sell by day, as if, as if he's playing with us or taunting us. That's not how God works. But God's gifts are a reflection of his nature, of his character. So his gifts are perfect, flawless, and divinely purposeful. So a trial, a test is divinely purposeful. But then there's a promise about the giver. This is about his character. When God is called the father of lights, it's a reference to God as creator. He created the lights in the heaven. And Genesis 1 says that everything God made and does is what? It's good. So he's consistent here in what he's saying. But he's also saying that as this Father of lights, that there is no variation or shadow due to change. God created the heavens, He created the stars, He created the moon, He created the sun, and and He is the one who is sovereign all o- over that. So He is the Father of lights, but He is different than those heavenly bodies. Those heavenly bodies, as you know, they move around, don't they? I mean, the you know the moon is doing this, the sun is doing this, so I can't. I only have so many parts of my body to say what the stars are doing. But they're constantly moving. But with God, there is no change. So this is speaking to the fact that God doesn't change. He's not one day giving you good gifts and the next day saying, I don't care. Uh, Take this one. No, that's not how God is. God is consistent. He is always giving us good gifts. And through the prophet Malachi, the Lord declares, I, the Lord, do not change. Through John, we're told that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Through the writer of Hebrews, we're assured that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so, James is not writing here a scientific treatise. But is using general language about the constant motion of these heavenly bodies to make a point about God. He's saying God does not change like the heavens do. So, we must view our tests or our trials not as traps but as good gifts from God that have been divinely crafted and are moving us toward maturity. It's just it's an important perspective that we need to have. Listen to Matthew seven one through eleven. In fact, I think I have it up here on the screen. Jesus is speaking here. He says, "Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open." Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You see how James is pulling the language of his Savior, his brother, who was the Savior, to, to kind of present for us how we are to, to perceive of these trials and these difficulties. God doesn't give us something other than what we are going through that is a good gift. It's not going to fool us. Thirdly, not only do we embrace, or we must heed the the warnings that we could promise, but we must embrace our identity. And this is a particular um, gift that God has given us. Again, we must see that our temptation is not an external problem, but it's an internal problem. We must see that because that is true, the solution to man's problem then is not external. In other words, no external ritual or ceremony or rite or profession or action can change his basic evil nature. Man's basic evil nature. He can only become righteous by seeking to behave. or so He can't become righteous by seeking to behave righteous or talking religiously. It's interesting as a pastor, this is What I experience, because I'm a pastor, you know, you you meet people and, you know, I'm I'm not saying, you know, know, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, but you you start talking, oh, you get a conversation, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm an engineer, blah, 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 what do you do? I'm a pastor. And something changes. And they start using, like, you know, spiritual language, (laughs) you know, changing your language. Doesn't mean that you're right with God. Going through you know, religious ritual doesn't mean that you're right with God. And we might say that's out there, but oh, that can be in history. We can learn the language of the church. We can participate in the church and still not be born again. We need to hear that. And one of the reasons why we always want to keep the gospel central, not only is it a need for believers, but it's also obviously a need for unbelievers. We need the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel. Now, notice what it says here in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. In this verse, we find three truths to comfort us and to give us light. And they reinforce that God is not responsible for our temptations or for the sins that result from giving into those temptations. Instead, they show in specific fashion that he is responsible for the good and perfect gift of our righteousness. So James now continues to use this childbirth motif. This expression um, brought us forth literally means to give birth to. So here's some Here's the first one. It's not going to be up on the screen. Here, here's the first of the future. Our new birth is the result of God's will, not our own. Did you catch that? Of his own will he brought us forth. Our regeneration, this expression that is not as popularly used anymore, being born again takes place out of the will and the heart of God. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It referring back to um, this faith. It is God who is the one, who is the source of our being born again. Not us. Right? That's what James is saying here. He wants to remind his readers of that truth. These are truths that help us gain perspective in our trial. Right? Because you know what? God didn't have to birth us. Get that? But he did. And if God, out of his own will, did that, then you are one of his children. How do you treat your children? Why are your children different than other people's children? I know you care about people, but you care more about your children, right? We are the offspring of God in that sense. He gave birth to us out of his will. Secondly, our new birth came to us By the word of God. That's what it says. He brought us forth by the word of God. Listen to Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then here's the punchline. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And James is just reinforcing that reality. God, out of his will, gave birth to you. God gave birth to you out of his word, by his word, by the preaching of his word. I think was a reminder here, if you remember, we were going through Mark's gospel, and Jesus was going and performing miracles and all this kind of stuff, casting out demons. I mean, he, you know, it, it was busy ministry. But his heart was always to preach the gospel. And that's why when his disciples said, you know, we're looking for you, where are you? People, people want you to come and do more miracles. He's like, no, I think we're going to go on to the next village. Jesus doesn't care. No, he cares because he knows what is important. It is the preaching of the gospel. You see, it's the word. And that's what James is reinforcing here. He brings us forth by the word of God. Number three, as a result, we are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, this language, this expression, first fruits, is farming language that describes the best crops that were usually. Harvested first, that were an indicator of what the rest of the crops would be like. And so he's using this then kind of as language to describe those initial believers in the early church. Speaking here, this is, this is the earliest letter, and he's speaking to these new believers that are scattered around. You are the first fruits, is what he's saying. Since Christ has, has, has come and since he has gone, As the gospel has gone out, you are this first generation of believers. You are the first fruits. But you are a representation of what the rest of the harvest is going to look like. And if you're a child of God today, you're a part of that harvest. Now You you see what he's doing. He's saying, listen, as you're going through trials and as you're wrestling with temptation, be reminded of your identity in Christ. God is the one who birthed you. God is the one who birthed you by his word. And God is the one who has harvested his crop and is still harvesting his crop. And you're a part of that. Don't forget who you are in Christ. You see, God is not the source of temptation, but he is the source of all things good. He gives good gifts to his children And the primary good gift is the gift of regeneration whereby we are brought from death to life. Now just get some perspective here. Temptation moves from desire to sin to death. Regeneration moves from divine desire interacting with death that produces eternal life. It's the opposite. One leads to death, what God does, leads to life. Now, friends, there's a lot that we could say here, I just wanna bring it to a conclusion now with just four concluding thoughts that flow out of this that I think come in logical order for us as we're seeking to, as James is seeking to help us deal rightly and think rightly with temptation in the midst of our trials. And he wants us to be thinking clearly. So, we need to be thinking clearly on four levels. Number one, we need to be thinking clearly so that we can have a right view of God. See, society is always chipping away, seeking to chip away at a healthy, biblical, right view of God. I even read an article this week from a Christian publisher. Someone put it on Facebook, and I was like, you know, because it was the whole thing was love, love. You know, love was like this, this interpretive tool for everything. And look, our God is a loving God, but we can't abuse that love to undermine other things that He says are not right. So we've got to be careful that even in the church, we must keep pursuing to have a right view of God and check whether or not we've drifted in that view. <laughs> it's really important. If we don't have a right view of God, the rest of the dominoes fall. This is the beginning. Remember what we said. At the, I think it was the beginning of our time in James. A.W. Tozer says, you know, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. This is why. Secondly, we must then seek to have a right view of ourselves. We're so easily wanting to blame everyone and everything else for the sin that we commit. I understand how there can be so much pressure and how there can be provoking. That's why it's called temptation. But if you were to honestly step out of that circumstance for a bit and to think biblically about what happened and ask yourself, did you have to go down that path and sin? The answer is going to be no. There is nothing that forced me or made me do that. It was my heart in that moment saying yes to this sinful behavior. We must seek then to understand ourselves and be honest about who we are and what we're like, that we are still sinful creatures, that we need to be thinking on the things that God has given us, that we, we need to do heart surgery daily. We need to put off, we need to put on. And even with the put off and put on, verse 23 of chapter four of Ephesians says, and being renewed in the spirit of our mind, which means that we're not just changing one habit for another, we're actually changing our thinking to be more conformed to what God says, All right? A right view of God, a right view of ourselves, a right view of temptation and how it operates. Um, yeah, If we can spot this, if we can see it, if we can then, in particular areas, be able to, to build walls of protection for our particular unique struggle with temptation. You go around this room, we are all battling on different fronts. Some of us are battling on similar fronts. But your battle may not be the battle of the person next to you. We're all going through this, but we need to have a right view of what it is and how it works. And third, or fourth, I should say, a right view of the gospel and its fruit in our lives. Friends, <clears throat> when you fall flat on your face in sin, God has not abandoned you. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of being a child of God. A righteous man gets up. A righteous man says, God, I know you forgive. I know you don't like what I have done. I know that you you can completely see how I've given in this temptation. And I I know that you know these things, but I also know that you provide resolve and reconciliation that comes via the gospel. And you can be restored in your relationship with him. Now, friends, that's a beautiful thing. And so the more we can seek to discover the gospel, not just for conversion, obviously it's, it's beauty, it's, it's, it's gold for conversion, but it's also beautiful and gold for living. And we need to understand the gospel and how it relates to our temptation, our particular temptation. And that includes having a healthy understanding of your identity in Christ. Friends, we need to maintain an environment in our church where we're encouraging one another to remain steadfast because there will always be trials. To be asking God for wisdom because we desperately need it. To seek the right kind of blessing, which means faithfulness with the things that God has given us. And to be honest then about the pressure of temptation. And to be in an environment where someone does fall on their face that we are there to help pick them up. We're not there to point out their faults. Uh, An environment where our church can be a place where people can say, listen, I'm a mess, help me out. Show me God's word. Give me the, the, the life of the gospel whether that be in conversion or post-conversion when you're a believer who's fallen flat on your face. We need that environment, friends, okay? And let's seek to maintain that. I think that's what James is trying to get his church here to do, the the church abroad, going through these difficulties, saying, listen, we're all in this together, but let's work hard to, to honor God as we're all in this together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, For the trials that you give us. And I know for some of us sitting here today, that might be a really hard thing for us to say. And yet, in the midst of those trials, Lord, you are seeking to grow us to become perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, a picture of maturity there. And Lord, you desperately want to help us. And that's why you say, Ask me for wisdom. And certainly, Lord, we we rejoice over the fact that we have the promise of standing before you in heaven, having endured that trial, crossing the finish line, and receiving the crown of life. But, Lord, on that journey, we recognize that there are temptations galore. And we may be able to fight off some of them, but there are some unique temptations for each of us in here, Lord, that we battle with. And, Lord, we, we need your help, we need your guidance. So Lord, allow this text to do work in our hearts, to, to, to nurse us in such a way that we can, we can see what is going on and we can, we can chart a course that would be to live for your glory in a steadfast way. Oh Lord, we need you desperately and we're thankful for the gospel and what it has done to us and what it is doing through us now. And we give you the glory in your precious name. Amen.